Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Max Willens. I'm a senior reporter at Digiday, and I am not Brian Morrissey. Brian Morrissey is your normal host, but Brian is moving, so I am acting as host in his stead. This week, our guest is Chris Krusen, who is the executive director of Lion Publishers. Lion stands, for those of you who don't know, for local independent online news. And uh, the unofficial title of this podcast is The Good, the Bad, and the Hopeful of Local News. Uh, Welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So... I think most of the people that listen to this podcast are up on the major players in media, but for people who are listening who aren't familiar, why don't you familiarize everybody with uh, with Lion and what you guys do? Sure. Lion is a national nonprofit that helps local journalism entrepreneurs, both for and nonprofit themselves, uh, make a push for sustainability. We've been around as an association since 2012. We grew out of something called the Block by Block Conference which was uh, started by a lot of the early place bloggers like Baristanet in New Jersey um, and uh, was funded by the Patterson Foundation, wound up hiring its first executive director in 2015. Uh, that was Matt DiRienzo. Um, I joined Lion a year ago. Uh, and that year, we had just gotten a million dollars in funding from the Knight Foundation to grow our capacity and help grow our membership. Um, with that money and that that foundation, I was able to hire uh, the Lion's first non-executive director full-time staff. We stand right now at about 290 members across the country. About 60% of those are for-profit and 40% are non-profit. But regardless of their tax status, all of them uh, are businesses aimed at serving distinct geographic communities across the country. Uh, our two biggest states for membership are New York and California, which shouldn't be that much of a surprise because those are the two biggest states. Um, and some of them are, you know, small one to two person teams covering communities in their uh, area where they, where the, you know, the founder saw an opening. Others started that way, like Vermont Digger, and grew eventually to the largest newsroom in their state. So just a whole variety of approaches and um, backstories for this group, which, you know, I'm fond of saying is not the future of independent publishing, it's the present. Um, I think the future is a lot more cloudy, but also I'm incredibly optimistic about it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to both uh, the cloud and the and the silver lining here. Um, maybe we should start with uh, the the present and the the its its cloudiness. Um, we have been writing pretty much nonstop about uh, the implications of coronavirus and the fallout that has struck media, um, as well as the, the broader economy. But we focus on media here and um, the sting of the pandemic's uh, impact has really been felt most uh, strongly, I would say, among news publishers uh, versus, say, entertainment or uh, maybe more specialty publishers. And I would imagine that the sting is uh, sharpest for for local publishers. So maybe um, what have you and your members been doing for the last uh, five months to try to combat this? How have your membership been doing for the last six months? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think um, I would say local publishers have definitely felt, as you probably saw if you read the Neiman Lab piece on you know the the fall of McClatchy as it descended into bankruptcy in the middle of all this, uh, and what the impacts were on on that publisher. I think that one of the main differences between a traditional legacy publisher and my membership is just overhead. Lions are inc- an incredibly low overhead, you know, association to the degree that. Um, one of the things we learned, one of the projects we're working on is a survey of the space. It's called the Oasis Initiative or sorry, Project Oasis. It's funded by Google 
uh, working with UNC and the consultant Doug Smith, what we know about our about the space, um, and I'm saying like we we know about 525 publishers like those in Lion, about 275 of those returned surveys. What that told us was the st- the size of the sector. Right, 60% of those were fewer than 10 employees, 20% were 10 to 20, and 20% were 20 plus. Right, so so of these publishers, of the sixty percent, most are very very small. The vast majority of those are one to two people, and they're operating out of their houses. So in terms of overhead, in terms of their cost to do business, it's incredibly low as compared to even the smallest weekly newspaper, which tends to you know have an office space, have a printing agreement, have all these other sort of high fixed costs. And for Lions, those are really not an issue, um, by and large. So we know that they're operating with a much lower cost base. We know several of them have, since this thing started, pivoted into reader revenue, subscription revenue, and memberships in a huge way. Those that were incredibly reliant on direct display advertising, direct sold display advertising, and the programmatic stuff, which is a lower number, um, have had a harder hit and are, are taking themselves down to the studs. Um, but I think another difference between my membership and these legacy publishers is our members are more likely to go dormant for a little while than they are to turn off altogether and go out of business. It's just uh, it's, it's a switch that some of them, I think, are, are finding easier to flip. I'm not saying it's the case. We have not seen mass you know, closures of our membership. It's not been the same as the, the AAN, the Association of Alternative Newsweeklies, which literally did have a number of publishers within the first few weeks uh, because their business models were tied inextricably to where to go and what to do, and there was nowhere to go and nothing to do. And it wasn't just how they covered things or where their advertising came from, but also their distribution. All three of those boxes were gone. So um, how they're surviving so far, I mean, I'm very thankful that the platforms decided to open up the money tree and start you know, shaking dollars loose. Um, I know our members got $2.7 million in that first Facebook uh, the, sorry, the second round of Facebook grants, the $25 million they put towards local publishing. Um, I would guess that the number for Google is higher, although Google itself has not yet announced how much money it's put out there. I just know that their program was global and our members, I know some of the ones that didn't qualify for Facebook grants did qualify for emergency grants from Google. So our members uh, are learning now in a sort of on-the-job basis how to ask for money um, in a way that maybe because they were for-profits, uh, were unlikely to have asked for before. The question of raising or asking for money is is an interesting one, uh, which maybe we can we can touch on in, in more depth later. But um, do you expect that that's something that's going to have to become a, a bigger uh, piece of the pu- of the puzzle for them moving forward? Are, are news organizations, local news organizations, going to have to get get good at asking for money, whether it's for or from organizations like Facebook and Google or um, nonprofit? Or philanthropic, philanthropic organizations, or even mm-hmm. from you know local readers, is that? Tell me more from, about that. That piece from individual. I think you'll see a movement that looks a lot like how universities raise money with major donors in, in their areas and trying to figure out like issues of development, which is, um, you know, some of the more successful um, lions have done, like the Civil Beat, which has a development officer on staff who looks at you know things like individual member donations and has managed in some cases to turn. Um, four and five figure donations into six and seven figure grants. Um, that's obviously an outlier and a success story, but it's, you know, just figuring out how to identify and how to speak to your audience and build a business around that is, is, you know, face basically what the highest potential is right now. And not, not coincidentally, it's what the platforms are most interested in pushing news publishers to do. It's probably not an accident that both Facebook and Google run labs 
to try to help members um, of my association, of INN and of the local media association, build subscription businesses and, and build businesses that aren't in the display business. Um, yeah, that I should have backed up, actually. I mean, basically, one of the things that I was curious about, and it's, it's hinted at, I think, a little bit in the, the size and variety of your membership, but it, it seems like one of the reasons that local news is in such trouble is that the way that media has evolved toward digital has put kind of legacy structures and legacy business models in a position of really not being sustainable. And I feel like you could make an argument that local news in some ways is a, um, an institution in, in search of a business model. Um, do you, th what do you think about that, that notion? And, you know, where do you, would you say, um, you know, local news as a, I guess, yeah, as an institution is in, in its search for one of those? I, I mean, I think that's the case, but I also think that it's, it's probably not realistic to expect there to be a one-for-one -one replacement in what the future of local news looks like, and that maybe the future of local news is a lot more small things than a few big things, and that's just how the market has evolved for those big things. Um, one of the things that I love about my previous employer, the Philadelphia Inquirer, is that it's trying to figure out a way to keep 200 journalists or so employed in a major metro area. But an argument that I think to myself all the time is, why do there need to be 200 at one place? Why wouldn't there be a whole bunch of two to three people operations in neighborhoods and make up actually more coverage of, of what exists than one 200-person operation, which kind of evolves and defines an area as it decides it needs to? You know what I mean? I think that the definition of um, what the future of local news is going to be has been defined by gatekeepers who assume they're going to see a newspaper-like structure. Um, and look, I can talk I can talk abstractly about this. I can also talk about a market like Memphis, where you have a couple of different ways this apple's being sliced. One is the, um, the Daily Memphian, which very much planned to come in and disrupt the, I think it's a Gannett-owned daily newspaper in that town. They hired 30-some people. They have a subscription model. They are also members of Lion. They um, have a Metro section, a defined thing that says Metro on their page, which if you're not a newspaper reader, what does that mean to you? Um, they are attempting to cover the Grizzlies and the professional sports. It's, a, it's partly a play, I think, to keep the athletic out of, out of Memphis. Um, they are an island unto themselves. They have education beat reporters. It's a, it's a whole independent, like we want to replace, I think it's the commercial appeal is the name of the other title in Memphis. They want to mm -hmm. replace that with their own thing. So they built a thing. And the cost is the overhead is high. It's a it's a it's a big staff. It's a high overhead operation. They have an app. They're paying for developers. That's a lot of money that you need to be able to make back. On the other side of town, there's uh, MLK Fifty, which is run by a woman named Wendy C. Davis. Wendy partnered with uh, ProPublica and was able to do several investigations. One of which. Um, she got the largest medical in town to forgive millions of dollars in debt. Uh, that the that the citizens of the town had racked up. So she used a partnership with a national platform that has a local reporting program and was able to have impact that I think that 30-some person operation that was going in there as a daily newspaper killer would love to see. And she did it an entirely different way, a bottom-up way, I might say, instead of a top-down way. Both are, I'm not saying either approach is better than the other. I'm just saying there's a lot of ways to slice the idea that local news can have an impact. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with 30-plus people replacing what the newspaper used to do just without print. There's a lot of ways that the future in news is going to look, and we just have to be more kind of um, forgiving and open and able to see more of these experiments so that we can, you know, see which of them are worth continuing and adding fuel to. Mm. Does it seem, is it safe to say then you think that maybe the, the format or the model might be dependent on 
the kind of coverage. So for example, the kind of public interest reporting, like the ProPublica partnerships, uh, might have to be paid for one way where the, uh, you know, anti-athletic gets paid for some, some way else. Um, I, I assume that, you know, we're talking about models, plural, right? Rather than mm-hmm. one kind of new, yeah. new plan, uh, whether or not, you know, there's no newsprint involved. I do not think that there is any one silver bullet that we are still waiting to stumble upon that will save, that will allow a magical transition to take place. And I think this is the year that, you know, we're going to start seeing that more and more often. It's, I don't say that because I want that to happen, but um, I just, there, somebody would have figured that out by now and they haven't, which indicates to me it's, it's, uh, it's the wrong question to be asking. It's what combination of things can we, can we combine and keep combining in interesting ways to make these things viable local businesses? And frankly, I think they belong as small, independently owned businesses. I think the other sort of thing that you've seen break is the idea that combining them at something called scale in places across the country is a good idea. I don't know that that's the case anymore because what that's created is more and more and more overhead that we're seeing companies struggle with. So um, I would love to see, frankly, you know, hundreds more experiments start launching in order to to because you know in my mind if the future of local news just kind of looks like a slightly evolved version of what we have right now that's pretty boring Mm. um that's an interesting idea i'd love to get your thoughts though on the idea of small and beautiful startups growing past their small and and beautiful roots um last year for a digital magazine story i talked with a guy who runs boise dev which is a small sort of business publication in Boise, Idaho. And it's going really well. He started offering a paid tier of his service. I believe it was at the end of last year. He has some agreements in place with local businesses for distribution and things like that. But he's also one guy. And when I was talking to him about his workload, I just, I mean, I got exhausted just hearing him describe it. And I agree with what you're saying about the issues of there being legacy overhead and inefficiencies there. But tell me more about what you think of, about the prospects of, you know, larger entities growing up out of the ashes of all of this stuff, because we, yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. <clears throat> so we do have some of those things existing in line right now. There are clusters of sites. There's people who find, um, who, who launch an idea and have kind of a, a system they're happy with, a backend they like, a content plan they like, and they'll move over one town and launch a version there, and then move over to another town and launch a version there. Um, one of the things we're trying to sort of um, build with one of the programs we're doing right now, um, we're running a startup boot camp and incubator uh, funded by the Google News Initiative to help um, 24 different entrepreneurs go from concept to prototype and then an incubator program that's going to take 10 of the best ideas and take them from prototype to launch. Um, part of what we're going to do is suss out in that, in that prospect, what is your, what is your plan? Because some people don't ever want to get bigger than their neighborhood and that should be okay. But others who, who find a plan for growth and want to launch a cluster of sites in different areas, there should be a path for that as well. It all, it's all going to depend on, and and some of these concepts are things that I'm finding ourselves needing to introduce as an association to our members, ideas around money management, about budgeting for things, about launching new products, about when and how to expand. All of these are things that we're building curriculums around so that we can have that for people who are 
are in search of that information. One of my sort of early pitch lines for Lion is that there's a lot of information about how to start a business on the internet, but not enough about how to start a local news business. And Lion is aiming to change that. And so some of the work that we're doing is very much aimed at gathering best practices for that. Things like pitch decks and branding kits and job descriptions and HR policies and gathering all that up into one place and then publishing it all for our members so that we can, and aspiring members, you can join Lion, I should plug it, for $50, we have an aspiring entrepreneur tier. If you're looking to launch something, you can join Line. $50, have access to this stuff by September. We'll have a database and let you be able to see that X project in Y town used Z pitch deck to raise this much money um, or find this much from investors at the local level or had this much runway from somebody's buyout, which is the path for a lot of typical Lions. They will have receive some kind of severance money and we'll walk across the street and start a publication. I think this work is increasingly urgent because I think that's what we're going to see continue to happen to the news industry in this country is a lot more out-of-work journalists. Um, and I think we're here to help meet that need. That's what we've identified as, you know, as the trend that, that we need to be ready to help on. Because it's going to, we know after the 2008 recession, several of these sites that are now, um, kind of superstars, including the Texas Tribune, that's that's when they started. And so we're certainly coming up on or in the middle of uh, something even bigger. And uh, newspapers haven't responded and recovered from the last one. So I don't see much hope of them, of them recovering from this one either. I don't say that to, to want them to die, but saying something is in trouble and wanting it to be in trouble can be two different things. Yeah, absolutely. And you also too, just as an aside, the owners of many of the largest uh, newspapers. I think it's 45% of the, the daily newspaper circulation is now in, uh, controlled by two hedge funds that have shown themselves uh, disinclined to invest in news. Um, I guess maybe I'm curious a little bit about, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, GNI is involved in, in this, this boot camp. And earlier you talked about how Facebook and Google uh, have kind of rushed in with a lot of emergency funding, uh, which I know made the difference between some places turning the lights off and keeping them on, uh, certainly in the earliest months of, of the pandemics uh, sweeping across the United States. I'd like to talk, though, a little bit about uh, the role that you see Google and Facebook playing uh, in the, not just the short term, but sort of the medium and long term of uh, local news, because they've certainly stepped in. They, they understand the uh, value of local news to their own products and their own ability to attract audiences. But uh, tell me more about the role you see them playing. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think the, um, I think the reception from the news industry to them in terms of legacy players, it's always been kind of a fraught relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, you know, for, for me, my pitch to take the job at Lion was that I felt like the platforms had a responsibility to invest in the kind of internet that they need to succeed. I think that we're seeing through the pandemic that local news, accurate local news can save lives. That we can always make an argument and always have made an argument that informed communities are more healthy communities from a civic perspective, right? Informed democracies, they make better decisions, they elect better leaders, they are better stewards of public money, Uh, and so on and so forth. But we've never been able to draw in the way that we can today align to actual public health, right? Reporting, accurate reporting on a deadly pandemic that's uh, effect that's really the first global local story we've ever seen can be the difference between 
going somewhere that's a hotspot and not going somewhere that's a hotspot, right? Can be the difference in 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 preventing something that's actually deadly and contagious. So if you draw that backwards and you think about the platforms uh, and their responsibility, especially around something like misinformation, you know, for a little while there, and I used to run a local news website called Billy Penn in Philadelphia that definitely benefited from the fact that you could have no brand equity and still get thousands or hundreds of thousands of views on articles back in the days of 2014, 2015, 2016, thanks to Facebook and its algorithms, and thanks to, to Google and to search. Um, I knew that as a brand with no equity, I could still write stories and have them viewed by incredible masses of people. Um, Billy Penn, those stories happened to be you know, written by veterans of large newsrooms, fact-checked within an inch of their life, and when we, had mis- when we made mistakes, we corrected them. It was also a system that, um, because of programmatic advertising, because of ad networks, you could easily game misinformation and earn just as much, if not more money, right, for, for things that were false and fake. And so as far as I'm concerned, if, that, if it's true that local information is a more quality experience and there's a responsibility for those platforms to support the good stuff and not incentivize the garbage as they have been. Now, they're trying to get a handle on that, and I understand that, and I support that. But I also think that they're seeing their role, and, and out of all this sprung both the Google News Initiative and the Facebook Journalism Project, both of which have put time, effort, and treasure behind training publishers to not just use their systems, but figure out how to, how to build revenue streams that are separate from those kinds of um, influence and dominance. Um, at root of it, though, in, as well, I, I don't know that news publishers are blameless in the loss of their advertising to these new platforms. I think the platforms came along and were a better, there's frankly, there's too many places for an advertiser to go these days. And the news website experience, and it's the audience they were reaching, isn't as compelling as the other options that were out there. So it's hard for me to say that they're taking advertising from newspapers. No, they just created a better product. And that's where the ads went. Um, However, um, I do think that there is a measure of responsibility because they do control so much of like the, when I was working in newspapers, the penetration of a Facebook and all of its apps and WhatsApp and Instagram and everything is so high. It's something that media never, ever had that I worked for at the local level. Um, that there's a responsibility that goes there. If it's something called a news feed, which is literally central to the product, that what goes into that news feed and is verified quality information should surface higher and get priority. And I think that's, as far as I'm concerned, some of the stuff they're kind of trying to do, but they're trying to do it inside a much larger company that's just, frankly, how to get the best ad experience for the most eyeballs possible. I don't know if that was like the best answer for you. Well, it is a very good answer, but I'll ask a more pointed uh, follow-up, which is, do you think that those two companies uh, have a responsibility to pay some sort of like ongoing carriage uh, fee or syndication fee to to local publishers? You've seen that they've begun to do this um, with, you know, whether it's with Facebook, News Tab or whatever, but that money has largely gone to very large publications. Um, Do you expect and feel like those uh, platforms have an obligation to uh, pay the little guys too? I, boy, I think it's an interesting argument. Um, and I could understand why they would, why as a business, they would not want to do it. And I could understand why as a business, my members could certainly use that kind of a regular infusion. I'd love to see a whole bunch of different money start flowing to my publishers, including things like legal notices and publications, which are separate from Facebook entirely and just kind of a different way to, to, to have that same thing. I'm, I'm certainly down to help them figure it out. 
um, I think it starts getting hard in a local defined community to talk about how that's going to work. Um, when Facebook has done a pretty masterful job of avoiding any of that kind of, uh, regulatory, um, outcome in this country. And I don't know whether that's a long-term thing or a short-term thing. Um, based, I say Facebook primarily because Facebook seems to be the one that's, the um, has seen the biggest, most volatile um, response to its policies and has seen, I think, the bigger ad boycott, right, is, is Facebook's. Yeah, um, I think that's right. So it's hard for me to, um, I think the, the loudest in the first calls for, uh, for that kind of a revenue stream have come for years from News Corp and from Rupert Murdoch, and it's really hard for me to take that kind of stuff seriously. Um, when it's tied to the cable model to it's it's an, essentially the argument of uh, of a retrans fee if we're switching mediums here and saying it's what local broadcasters are now getting from your cable companies um a, a major difference being you know facebook and google don't charge their users anything in the same way that i whether i watch fox news or not i pay for that every month if i'm a direct tv subscriber so for me that's where it starts to break down a little bit in that um in the retrans model, the ultimate person who puts the bill for that um, service is the cable provider. And the equivalent for a cell phone user might be a cell phone. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how that, how that shakes down, right? Whether it causes everybody's cell phone bill to go up a couple of dollars and, and that's how it pays for itself, or whether we're just asking the platforms to cut into those fabulously fat profit margins they're making. Um, you know, it's it's hard for me to make the argument because because frankly, man, if I could stop paying for Fox News, I would, but I don't <laughs> get that choice in my bundle. So um, I, I know exactly what you mean. I want to <laughs> ask a little bit about the other uh, kind of major source of revenue that uh, has, I think we've discussed already, should likely become more important and more prominent uh, for local news, certainly in the, the near to medium term. And that's that's philanthropic organizations. So um, you've seen a lot of uh, efforts made lately to, they, they've always, you know, uh, various philanthropic and, you know, nonprofit organizations have always uh, paid for reporting projects, whether it's, you know, done by the Guardian or the New York Times or, you know, individual public media, sure. independent, yeah, public media. Um, but there's now kind of a lot of discussion about the idea that they should sort of form the the bedrock of uh, you know the next generation of local news. Like, what do you what, what's your thought about that? What do you what do you think about that prospect? Um, one of the more amplified purveyors of this notion is John Thornton, uh, who, mm -hmm. along with Elizabeth Green, co-founded something called the American Journalism Project, uh, which raised something like sixty million dollars to strengthen uh, entirely the nonprofit local news ecosystem. And what I've heard John say is that successful nonprofit news in a city works a lot like a symphony. And if a city can afford a symphony orchestra, a city should be able to afford a strong, independent nonprofit news source. Um, and as far as that analogy goes, I think that's a fine analogy. But I do know that there are a lot of places in this country that can't afford a symphony and, frankly, wouldn't want one. Um, I think that um, how I view local independent online publishers is that regardless of what they fill out in their tax form, they have to be sustainable businesses. It's not a hobby, it's a business. And if I'm, what, I'm, what I'm dedicated to, to building programs and support for my members to do is help them um, get something started that generates enough money on its own. And some of that can be grant funding, but some of that 
most of it should not be. I, I think of over-reliance on grants, especially in public media, is what winds up happening when you look at a public media station and you see a whole bunch of coverage of the watershed and nowhere near enough coverage of City Hall. And it's because the grants have skewed its coverage in one direction. And that's the danger as far as I'm concerned with that model. You could argue that more funding should go to that, but there's always going to be more places for that funding to go than there is available funding. So if that's the case, what I want to see philanthropic dollars mostly do is give things a push rather than continually be asked to pull them along for years and years and years after that. I'd love to see a founders fund that helps um, disenfranchised communities uh, with just a little bit of money to get something started for a couple of years and have that thing begin to generate the money itself through memberships and through, I don't know, maybe we build a wire cutter for local news that helps people sell local goods in their town or something like that. There's another revenue stream for these members. And, and when I say there need to be more experiments, in many cases, that's why. I don't know that we've hit on what the secret sauce is for this kind of stuff just yet. So, you know, it's, it's we have to replace, I think, not just the um, local newspaper, but the whole ecosystem that used to exist around that local newspaper, we have to figure out how to rebuild for the 21st century. Um, and that's what I think the next few years of Lion's Life are going to be about. It's interesting. I actually want to, that's a great segue into the last thing I wanted to ask you just to end on kind of a hopeful and um, more upbeat note. And I'm curious if I'd love to hear some examples of some of the more interesting and innovative uh, attempts you've noticed, whether it's among your membership or elsewhere in the local space for, for generating revenue. I've, I've heard of examples of uh, publications that have, you know, opened up, up coffee shops of uh, places that have, you know, started their own uh, data services. Uh, what are some of the interesting experiments that you've you've seen underway? Um, you know whether you or not you think they're replicable. Because I think one of the, the themes that's emerged in this conversation is just how uh, idiosyncratic and individualized and tailored a lot of these solutions are going to be, depending on the community. But what are some some of the you know more interesting ones that you've uh, you've come across? Yeah, I think um, you know I've got a member. Of, uh, of Lion named John Heaston, who also runs a couple of, of uh, different publications in Omaha, Nebraska, who, um, who has basically an agency business that helps small businesses in Omaha, not just you know with advertising, but manages their social media presence, builds campaigns for them on their own pages, and basically does reputation management for them. And that agency business is what's allowed him to ride this out uh, a lot more comfortably than members that just uh, the value proposition is you give me an ad for your upcoming picnic and I put that out on my website and I sell you that space. Um, it's a it's a pretty clear um, evolution of that relationship with small merchants where you know there is a tie between a merchant and the news provider, but what you are monetizing is uh, is that relationship, is that connection to your to your customer in a very different way than a sort of CPM driven, here's how many pages I got last month, so your bill is a little bit higher situation. Um, it's a much more nuanced approach, and I think it's um, it's got a lot of potential um, for others who are looking to be in that space. Um, there's a member that we have in Long Beach, California, the Long Beach Post, which is a for-profit publisher. Since the pandemic started, uh, David Summers is, is the name of the publisher. He added a membership program. Uh, right before the pandemic started, the Long Beach Post was doing well enough for David to buy the Long Beach Business Journal away from a, a local print competitor. So we have an online only that bought a print component just because he was fascinated by the profit margins and thought it was just the easiest thing in the world to start doing with a more digital mindset. 
um, we have, you know, members in Mendocino, California, experimenting with a co-op structure and trying to um, play with that um, sort of tax status. Uh, the Akron Devil Strip uh, is also a new member, also just became, uh, I think, the first co-op in the Midwest to run a former kind of alternative weekly magazine as a true community publication. And he's trying to figure out how to apply a sort of sponsorship model to his membership program so that, because um, one of the big questions, obviously, about reader revenue is what happens when your readers don't have revenue? What happens when these $600 payments, you know, stop from the government? And that's that's a whole other ball of wax that's going to wind up forcing a reckoning in these places that are just starting to build subscription businesses and membership programs. Um, and, you know, dollars are going to wind up being stretched so far. So um, I'm looking at the stuff that people like, like, Tony Hale are doing with scroll with it, with interest and, and whether he can wind up um, sort of succeeding and signing more local members up for the, for his kind of, of approach to this. Um, I'm not an anti paywall guy, but I do think I've noticed when a staff size gets a certain to a certain heft, people start thinking paywall, but below that membership tends to be a model that works better for people. And I don't mean to say that I'm against paywalls for smaller places. It's just, that's kind of how I've noticed that, that breakdown working out. Um, all of which to say, um, and I'm fascinated by the people who have, you know, have coffee shops or have physical spaces or have figured out how to, you know, have a spot in a library for their office when that becomes a thing everybody can do again. I, I do think there's some pretty huge opportunities for publishers to adapt to this shut-in economy that it seems like we're going to be going in and out of for the next six, eight, ten months, tying themselves to delivery services or restaurant specials or things that are available and figuring out ways to monetize their relationship with their audience. I really do think that's that's a through line of this Oasis project that I mentioned earlier. We're working on uh, with the University of North Carolina and um, and Doug Smith. Um, I think we're learning that the businesses that are able to adapt are the ones that are the most in tune and talk to their audiences the most and are, and are responsive to their, you know, to their concerns. I like that. It's good to end on. Thank you, Chris. Sure. It's good to be here. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. And if you like, you can even rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people discover the show. Brian will be back next week with your new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.